Chapter Seven of Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. Chapter Seven. Midsummer Calm. During our first summer in the trenches, there were days, sometimes weeks at a time, in the language of the official bulletins there was nothing to report or calm prevailed along our entire front from the war office point of view these statements were doubtless true enough but from tommy atkinson's point of view calm was putting it somewhat mildly life in the trenches even on the quietest days is full of adventure highly spiced with danger snipers machine-gunners artillerymen airmen engineers of the opposing sides vie with each other in skill and daring in order to secure that coveted advantage the morale tommy calls it the morale but he jolly well knows when he has it and when he hasn't there were many nights of official calm when we machine-gunners crept out of the trenches with our guns to positions prepared beforehand either in front of the line or to the rear of it there we waited for messages from our listening patrols who were lying in the tall grass of the front yard they sent word to us immediately when they discovered enemy working parties building up their parapets or mending their barbed wire entanglements we would then lay our guns according to instructions received and blaze away each gun firing at the rate of from three hundred to five hundred rounds per minute after a heavy burst of fire we would change our positions at once it was then that the most exciting part of our work began for as soon as we ceased firing there were answering falsades from hundreds of german rifles and within two or three minutes german field artillery began a search for us with shrapnel we crawled from one position to another over the open ground or along shallow ditches dug for the purpose these offered protection from rifle fire but frequently the shell-fire was so heavy and so well directed that we were given some very unpleasant half-hours lying flat on our faces listening to the deafening explosions and the vicious whistling of flying shrapnel we fired from the trenches as well as in front and to the rear of them we were in fact busy during most of the night for it was our duty to see to it that our guns lived up to their reputation as weapons of opportunity and surprise with the aid of large-scale maps we located all of the roads within range back of the german lines roads which we knew were used by enemy troops moving in and out of the trenches we located all of their communication trenches leading back to the rear and at uncertain intervals we covered roads and trenches with bursts of searching fire the german gunners were by no means inactive they too profited by their knowledge of night life in the firing line their knowledge of soldier nature they knew as we did we that the roads in the rear of the trenches are filled at night with troops transport wagons and fatigue parties they knew as did we that men become so utterly weary of living in ditches living in holes like rats that they are willing to take big risks when moving in or out of the trenches for the pure joy of getting up on top of the ground many a night when we were moving up for our week in the first line or back 
for our week in reserve, we heard the far-off rattle of German maxims, and in an instant the bullets would be zip, zipping all around us. There was no need for the sharp word of command. If there was a communication trench at hand, we all made a dive for it at once. If there was not, we fell face down, in ditches, shell holes, or any place which offered a little protection from that terrible hail of lead. Many of our men were killed and wounded nightly by machine-gun fire, usually because they were too tired to be cautious, and, doubtless, we did as much damage with our own guns. It seemed to me horrible, something in the nature of murder. That advantage must be taken of these opportunities. But it was all a part of the game of war, and fortunately we rarely knew, nor did the Germans, what damage was done during those summer nights of calm along the entire front. The artillerymen, both British and German, did much to relieve the boredom of those nothing-to-report days. There were desolatory bombardments of the trenches at daybreak and at dusk, when every infantryman is at his post, rifle in hand, bayonet fixed, on the alert for signs of a surprise attack. If it was a bombardment with shrapnel, Tommy was not greatly concerned, for in trenches he is fairly safe from shrapnel fire. But if the shells were large-caliber high explosives, he crouched close to the front wall of the trench, lamenting the day he was foolish enough to become an infantryman. A bloomin' human ninepin, covered with dirt sometimes half buried in fallen trench. He wagered his next week's tobacco rations that the London papers would print the same old story. Along the western front there is nothing to report, and usually he won. Trench mortaring was more to our liking. That is an infantryman's game, and while extremely hazardous, the men in the trenches have a sporting chance. Everyone forgot breakfast when the word was passed down the line that we were going to mortify Fritzy, the last relief night sentries who had just tumbled sleepily into their dugouts, tumbled out of them again to watch the fun. Fatigue parties, working in the communication trenches, dropped their picks and shovels, and came hurrying up to the first line. Eagerly, expectantly, every one waited for the sport to begin. Our projectiles were immense balls of hollow steel filled with high explosive of tremendous power. They were fired from a small gun, placed usually in the first line of reserve trenches. A dull boom from the rear warned us that the game had started. "'There she is! See her? Going true as a die! She's going to it! She's going to it!' All the boys would be shouting at once. Up it goes, turning over and over, rising to a height of several hundred feet. Then, if well aimed, it reaches the end of its upward journey, directly over the enemy's line, and falls straight into his trench. There is a moment of silence, followed by a terrific explosion which throws dirt and debris high into the air. By this time every Tommy along the line is standing on the firing bench, head and shoulders above the parapet quite forgetting his own danger in his excitement, and shouting at the top of his voice, "'How's that one, Fritzy boy? Guten Morgen, you Prussian sausage wallopers! Take a bit of that home to your missus!' But Fritzy could be depended upon to keep up his end of the game. He gave us just as good as we sent, and often he added something for full measures. 
His surprises were sausage-shaped missiles, which came wobbling towards us, slowly, almost awkwardly. But they dropped with lightning speed, and alas for any poor Tommy who misjudged the speed of its fall. However, everyone had a chance. Trench-mortar projectiles are so large that one can see them coming, and they describe so leisurely an arc before they fall that men have time to run. I have always admired Tommy Atkins for his sense of fair play. He enjoyed giving Fritz a little bit of all right, but he never resented it when Fritz had his own fun at our expense. In the far-off days of peace, I used to lament the fact that we had fallen upon evil times. I read of old wars with a feeling of regret that men had lost their old primal love for dangerous sport, their naive ignorance and fear. All the brave, heroic things of life were said and done. But on those trench-mortaring days, when I watched boys playing with death with right good zest, heard them shouting and laughing as they tumbled over one another in their eagerness to escape it, I was convinced of my error. Daily I saw men going through the test of fire triumphantly, and, at the last, what a severe test it was, and how splendidly they met it. During six months continuously in the firing line, I met less than a dozen natural-born cowards, and my experience was largely with plumbers, drapers' assistants, clerks, men who had no fighting traditions to back them up, make them heroic in spite of themselves. The better I knew Tommy, the better I liked him. He hasn't a shred of sentimentality in his makeup. There is plenty of sentiment, sincere feeling, but it is admirably concealed. I had been a soldier of the king for many months before I realized that the men with whom I was living, sharing rations and hardships, were anything other than the healthy animals they looked. They relished their food and talked about it. They grumbled at the restraints military discipline imposed upon them, and at the paltry shilling a day which they received for the first really hard work they had ever done. They appeared to regard England as a miserly employer, exacting their last ounce of energy for a wretchedly inadequate wage. To the casual observers, theirs was not the adore of loyal sons, fighting for a beloved motherland. Rather, it seemed that of irresponsible schoolboys on a long holiday. They said nothing about patriotism or the duty of Englishmen in wartime, and if I attempted to start a conversation along that line, they walked right over me, with their boots on. This was a great disappointment at first. I should never have known from anything that was said that a man of them was stirred at the thought of fighting for old England. England was all right, but I ain't going balmy about the old flag and all that stuff. Many of them insisted that they were in the army for personal and selfish reasons alone. They went out of their way to ridicule any and every indication of sentiment. There was the matter of talk about mothers, for example. I can't imagine this being the case in a volunteer army of American boys, but not once during fifteen months of British Army life did I hear a discussion of mothers. When the weekly parcels from England arrived and the boys were sharing their cake and chocolate and tobacco, one of them would say, Good old mum, she ain't bad sort to be answered with reluctant mouth-filled grunts or grudging nods of approval. As for fathers, 
I often thought to myself, what a tremendous army of posthumous sons. Months before I would have been astonished at this reticence, but I had learned to understand Tommy. His silences were as eloquent as any splendid outbursts or glowing tributes could have been. Indeed, they were far more eloquent. Englishmen seemed to have an instinctive understanding of the futility, the emptiness of words in the face of unspeakable experiences. It was a matter of constant wonder to me that men living in the daily and hourly presence of death could so surely control and conceal their feelings. Their talk was of anything but home, and yet I knew they thought of but little else. One of our boys was killed, and there was the letter to be written to his parents. Three Tommies who knew him best were to attempt this. They made innumerable beginnings. Each of them was afraid of blundering, of causing unnecessary pain, by an indelicate revelation of the facts. There was a feminine fineness about their concern, which was beautiful to see. The final draft of the letter was a little masterpiece, not of English, but of insight, such a letter as any one of us would have wished his own parents to receive under the circumstances. Nothing was forgotten which could have made the news in the slightest degree more endurable. Every trifling personal belonging was carefully saved and packed in a little box to follow the letter. All of this was done amid much boisterous jesting. There was the usual hilarious singing to the wheezing accompaniment of an old mouth-organ. But of reference to home, or mothers, or comradeship, nothing. Rarely a night passed without its burial parties. Digging in the garden, Tommy calls the grave-making. The bodies, wrapped in blankets or waterproof ground sheets, are lifted over the parados and carried back a convenient twenty yards or more. The desolation of that garden, choked with weeds and a wild growth of self-sown crops, is indescribable. It was wreckage-strewn, gaping with shell-holes, billing with innumerable graves, a wasteland speechlessly pathetic. The popular trees and willow hedges have been blasted and splintered by shell-fire. Tommy calls these Kaiser Bill's flowers. Coming from England, he feels more deeply than he would care to admit the crimes done to trees in the name of war. Our chaplain was a devout man, but prudent to a fault. Never, to my knowledge, did he visit in the trenches. Therefore our burial parties proceeded without the rites of the church. This arrangement was highly satisfactory to Tommy. He liked to get the planning done, with the least possible delay and fuss. His whispered conversations while the graves were being scooped, to say the least, quite out of the spirit of the occasion. Once we were burying two boys with whom we had been having supper a few hours before. There was an artillery duel in progress, the shells whistling high over our heads and bursting in great splotches of white fire far in rear of the opposing lines and trenches. The grave-making went speedily on, while the burial party argued in whispers as to the caliber of the guns. Some said they were six-inch, while others thought nine-inch. Discussion was momentarily suspended when a trench rocket shot in an arc from the enemy's line. We crouched, motionless, until the welcome darkness spread again. And then in loud whispers, Here, if they was nine-inch, 
they would have had more screech. And one from the other school of opinion would reply, Don't talk so bloomin' silly. Ain't I tellin' you that you can't always size em by the screech? Not a prayer, not a word, either of censure or of praise, for the boys who had gone. Not an expression of opinion as to the meaning of the great change which had come to them, and which might come as suddenly to any or all of us. And yet I knew they were each thinking of these things. There were days when the front was really quiet. The thin trickle of rifle fire only accentuated the stillness of an early summer morning. Far down the line, Tommy could be heard singing to himself as he sat in the door of his dugout, cleaning his rifle or making a careful scrutiny of his shirt for those unwelcome little parasites which made life so miserable for him at all times. There were pleasant cracklings of burning pine sticks and the sizzle of frying bacon. Great swarms of blue-bottle flies buzzed lazily in the warm sunshine. Sometimes, across a pool of noonday silence, we heard birds singing, for the birds didn't desert us. When we gave them a hearing, they did their cheery little best to assure us that everything would come right in the end. Once we heard a skylark, an English skylark, singing over no man's land. I scarcely know which gave me more pleasure, the song or the sight of the faces of those English lads as they listened. I was deeply touched when one of them said, Ain't he a plucky little chap, singing right in front of Fritzie's trenches for us, English blokes? It was as sincere and fitting tribute as perfect for a soldier as Shelley's ode for a poet. Along the part of the British front which we held during the summer, the opposing lines of trenches were from less than a hundred to four hundred and fifty or five hundred yards apart. When we were neighborly as regards to distance, we were also neighborly as regards to social intercourse. In the early mornings, when the heavy night mist still concealed the lines, the boys stood head and shoulder above the parapet and shouted, "'Hi, Fritzie!' And the greeting was returned. "'Hi, Tommy!' Then we conversed. Very few of us knew German, but it is surprising how many Germans could speak English. Frequently they shouted, "'Got any wood mines, Tommy?' His favorite brand of cigarettes, and Tommy would reply, "'Sure. Should I bring them over, or would you come and fetch them?' This was often the icebreaker, the beginning of a conversation which varied considerably in other details. "'Who are you?' Fritzy would shout. "'And Tommy.' We're the king's own, yeoman of adders, or some such subtle repartee as that. What's your mob? We're a battalion of Irish rifles. The Germans liked to provoke us by pretending that the Irish were disloyal to England. Sometimes they shouted, Any of you from London? Not arf what was you a-doin' off in London, waitin' table at Sam's Isaac's fish shop? The rising of the mist put an end to these conversations. Sometimes they were concluded earlier with bursts of rifle and machine-gun fire. All right to be friendly, Tommy would say, but we gotta let em know this ain't no love feast. End of chapter 7